0: Our guest today is an award-winning author and renowned historian. Professor Harvey Kay, a celebrated expert on both Thomas Paine and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, has written 10 books, including Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History, and Other Questions, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and his latest, FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Writings and Speeches of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Professor Kay,
1: welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this a lot.
0: We have been, too. Last week, we covered the first part of your book, FDR on Democracy. And today, we're thrilled to have you back for part two. We ended last week's episode with FDR's great speech at the 1936 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. Where he was renominated for president. As he sought reelection in the midst of the Great Depression, here's what FDR told the American people
2: There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given, of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a
0: rendezvous with destiny. He does win. He wins in one of the most historic landslides in American history. And then he gives his second inaugural address, which I have to say, even if you're FDR, it had to be somewhat daunting to have to follow up the first one. But... It is also one of his most important speeches and one that I think is often overlooked, again, overshadowed by the 1933 inaugural, overshadowed by his war speeches and other things. But the one-third of a nation, I I think it's an incredible speech, and we're going to play a a few bits of it here. This year marks the 150th
2: anniversary of the Constitutional Convention which made us a nation. At that convention, our forefathers, found the way out of the chaos that that followed the Revolutionary War, they created a strong government with powers of united action, sufficient then and now to solve problems utterly beyond individual or local action. A century and a half ago, they established a federal government in order to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to the American people. Today, we invoke those same powers of government to achieve the same objective. But here is the challenge to our democracy. In this nation, I see tens of millions of its citizens, a substantial part of its whole population, who at this very moment are denied the greater part of what the very lowest standards of today call the necessities of life. I see millions of families trying to live on income so meager that the pall of family disaster hangs over them day by day. I see millions whose daily lives in city and on farm, continue under conditions labeled indecent by a so called polite society half a century ago. I see millions denied education, recreation, and the opportunity to better the lot of themselves and their children. I see millions lacking the means to buy the products of farm and factory and by their poverty, denying work and productiveness to many other millions. I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. But it is not in despair that I paint that picture for you. I paint it for you in hope, because the nation, seeing and understanding the injustice of it, Proposes to paint it out. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much, it is whether we provide enough for those who have too little.
0: Again, he goes back the founding. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the Constitutional Convention, which made us a nation. He he calls back to that. He goes through and he explains that, yeah, we've made some progress. But unlike a president who, again, second term was off the last term, always the last term, if they even made it that far, FDR talks about what work has to be done, what's left to be done. And when he talk a little bit about his critique of that one-third of a nation, and again, a little unusual for an inaugural address to talk
1: about suffering, to talk about what was happening in the country. Yeah, I mean, he clearly was, in prior speeches, celebrating the things that they were pursuing. He doesn't brag about what they have accomplished. He often talks about the project that is underway, if we go back into the other speeches. He now knows that he's confronting a massive challenge because the Supreme Court is still a conservative Supreme Court. It has struck down these two prior initiatives. And coming up on the court's agenda, he knows will be both Social Security that was enacted in 1935 and that bill I referred to before that turned into the National Labor Relations Act. Now, if people talk now, what were the two most important legislative initiatives of the Roosevelt presidency, they will definitely say Social Security and the National Labor Relations Act. However much the National Labor Relations Act by way of the National Labor Relations Board has been literally devastated by a series of Republican and maybe even neoliberal presidencies, uh, Democratic presidencies. So the thing is, he knows that the challenge remains and he's letting Americans know, look, the New Deal has just begun. One-third of the nation is still suffering, enduring poverty and destitution, or at least they're barely holding on because perhaps they're involved in one of these initiatives like young men of the CCC were basically, the monies were being sent back to their families. He knew what was going on, and hundreds of thousands of young people are still on the road. Okay, so... The fear is that as new legislation emerges, not to mention what happens when the court talks about Social Security and the National Labor Relations Act, he is already laying the groundwork for popular support for the possibility of addressing the conservatism of the Supreme Court. And also he's trying to, if you like, rally the Democrats themselves to take up the kinds of initiatives he has in mind, including what will later be the Fair Labor Standards Act, and that, by the way, may well have been given its later turning to it by by administrations, the third most important legislative initiative of the New Deal years, because it's set in law. There already had been efforts to do it, but now sets into law the concept of a minimum wage set by the federal government and its coverage for American workers. So, I mean, this is a critical speech. It doesn't, you're right, it doesn't get the same attention But what you quoted in terms of the title, about one-third of a nation, that is often quoted. In fact, it's often quoted as a reference to the entire crisis of the Depression years. The
0: one line also that really stuck out to show FDR's view of the world and view of capitalism and democracy, the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. One of those FDR lines that is so encapsulates what the New Deal was about, but one that's not often cited
1: by historians. I want to call your attention to the campaign address in Cleveland, Ohio in 1940, a speech that nobody pays attention to. I'd like us to connect that speech to how he speaks then in 1937, because in 37, what he's talking about is the fact... In 1937, as you said, this is one-third of a nation. It's still the concern for the American people. For He doesn't want the forgotten man to be forgotten again in 1937. Now, in 1940, in a campaign address, so now we've moved ahead almost four years, and I titled this speech, We Are Characters in This Living Book of Democracy, but We Are Also Its Author. He goes back again to the idea of the American citizen together with fellow citizens, as the agents of American history, as the makers of American history.
2: This generation of Americans is living in a tremendous moment of history. The surge of events abroad has made some few doubters among us ask, is this the end of a story? that has been told, is the book of democracy now to be closed and placed away on the dusty shelves of time? You're right, the answer is no. My answer also is this, all we have known of the glories of democracy, its freedom, its efficiency as a mode of living, its ability to meet the aspirations of the common man, all of these are merely an introduction to the greater story of a more glorious future. And we Americans today, all of us, we are characters in this living book of democracy. But we are also its author. It falls upon us now to say whether the chapters that are to come will tell a story of retreat or a story of continued advance. And so with you again I believe that the American will people the American people will say go forward So I think that it is the destiny of this American generation to point the road to the future for all the world to see. It is our prayer that all lovers of freedom may join us, the anguished common people of this earth for whom we seek to light the path. I see an America where factory workers are not discarded after they reach their prime where there is no endless chain of poverty from generation to generation, where impoverished farmers and farmhands do not become homeless wanderers, where monopoly does not make youth a beggar for a job. I see in America whose rivers and valleys and lakes, hills and streams and plains, the mountains over our land and nature's wealth deep under the earth are protected as the rightful heritage of all the people. I see in America where small business really has a chance to flourish and grow. I see in America a great cultural and educational opportunity for all its people. I see in America where the income from the land shall be implemented and protected by a government determined to guarantee to those who grow it a fair share of the national income. An America where the wheels of trade and private industry continue to turn to make the goods for America, where no businessmen can be stifled by the harsh hand of monopoly, and where the legitimate profits of legitimate business are the fair reward of every businessman. Every businessman, big and little, in all the nation, I see in America with peace in the ranks of labor.
1: And I I absolutely love this speech. I see an America where factory workers are not discarded. I see an America whose rivers and valleys and lakes are protected as the rightful heritage, that section. But what he's done is he stands upon that by earlier saying, look at what you've done, right? And I have to tell you that it kills me. I can't tell you how much it kills me that the Democratic politicians that I like don't take a note from FDR, It's not like they have to plagiarize them, though I don't think anything would be wrong if they did, actually. I mean, this is part of our national heritage. But my goodness, these speeches, campaign speeches, and I wish Bernie, he got the idea when he said, not me, us. But man, instead of harping on the billionaires, if he started talking about what Americans themselves have accomplished and what they can do again with the right president. I know Biden says he's reading FDR stuff
0: He should read the primary source material here in your notes, because I think it really brings home what made that coalition and what made FDR such a formidable leader and was able to usher through that revolution
1: because he hit those points. Keep in mind, back when he was running for president, he talked about the forgotten man and doing everything from the bottom up. And he hasn't forgotten now. He's already talked about the imperative of not giving up the New Deal in 1936-37. The battle is, is to be fought not only in material terms, but also for the very life of democracy. And here, it's like another moment where, knowing what's going on in the world, he is basically saying to them, think about the powers you possess and what you have done, in other words, what you might yet do.
0: The next thing I want to talk about, and like I said, we could do this all, all day or all week, but the next place I want to go is I want to talk about two speeches at the same time because they were given in fairly short order. That's not to suggest that they in of them themselves were not uniquely important, but I think that it is fine to discuss them. And the first being, of course, his fireside chat, We must be the great arsenal of democracy, and then followed up by a speech you have written an entire book about, The Four Freedoms. And so talk a little bit about those two, and it's funny, we discussed before we began recording that you even debated whether putting in the Pearl Harbor speech for all the reasons that you and I know why it's important, but it isn't. To me, these are his two
1: declaration of war speeches right here. Yeah, well, keeping in mind, everyone who's listening, that in 1940, Hitler has created a European fortress of his own. And it is the case that Britain is his next target. He's already been lining up the troops and the tanks on the coast of France. They're bombing Britain. Blitzkrieg has been pretty successful, but Churchill has rallied the Britons to hold their own at home. The thing to remember is that Churchill needed help. Britain was going bankrupt. And Roosevelt thought of this, you know, he often spoke in terms of neighbors. It had to do with this policy towards Latin America was the good neighbor policy. And his idea that if your neighbor's home is on fire, you're not going to hesitate to lend him the hose to help him to help put out the fire. Well, Roosevelt is going to speak to the American people. He's already won the presidency, an unprecedented third election victory for the presidency back in November. This is now December 29, 1940, a new year's on the horizon. This is not a State of the Union address. It is not an acceptance speech. This is a speech, once again, of a fireside chat nature. Most Americans are probably sitting in some home or, or with family in some way, and clearly Americans were worried. Most Americans did not want to go to war. But it is also the case that most Americans, when asked, and people ignore these surveys, said that if the only way to defeat Hitler or the emperor of Japan was for the United States to enter the war, they were ready to do so. The draft had already begun. In 1940, the Republican. Wilkie had accused him of not telling the truth about his intention to go to war. I mean, the fact is that Roosevelt knew we would end up in a war. He knew it. And the trick was, could he provide aid to Britain and its imperial allies that would enable them to carry on long enough for Americans to be ready to fight the war? He knew the attack on America would come. He didn't know where. In fact, he often spoke as if he expected it in some way to be some kind of naval attack from Germany as opposed to necessarily Japan.
2: My friends, This is not a fireside chat on war. It is a talk on national security. Because the nub of the whole purpose of your president is to keep you now and your children later and your grandchildren much later out of a last ditch war for the preservation of American independence and all of the things that American independence means to you and to me and to ours. Tonight, in the presence of a world crisis, my mind goes back eight years to a night in the midst of a domestic crisis. It was a time when the wheels of American industry were grinding to a full stop, when the whole banking system of our country had ceased to function. I well remember that while I sat in my study in the White House, preparing to talk with the people of the United States, I had before my eyes the picture of all those Americans with whom I was talking. I saw the workmen in the mills, the mines, the factories, the girl behind the counter, the small shopkeeper, the farmer doing his spring plowing, the widows and the old men wondering about their life's savings. I tried to convey to the great mass of American people what the banking crisis meant to them in their daily lives. Tonight, I want to do the same thing with the same people, in this new crisis which faces America. We met the issue of 1933 with courage and realism. We face this new crisis, this new threat to the security of our nation, with the same courage and realism. Never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has our American civilization been in such danger as now? Some of our people like to believe that wars in Europe and in Asia are of no concern to us, but it is a matter of most vital concern to us that European and Asiatic war makers should not gain control of the oceans which lead to this hemisphere. 117 years ago, the Monroe Doctrine was conceived by our government as a measure of defense in the face of a threat against this hemisphere by an alliance in continental Europe. Thereafter, we stood guard in the Atlantic with the British as neighbors. There was no treaty. There was no unwritten agreement. And yet, there was the feeling proven correct by history that we as neighbors could settle any disputes in peaceful fashion. And the fact is that during the whole of this time, the Western Hemisphere has remained free from aggression from Europe or from Asia. Does anyone seriously believe that we need to fear attack anywhere in the Americas while a free Britain remains our most powerful naval neighbor in the Atlantic? And does anyone seriously believe, on the other hand, that we could rest easy if the Axis powers were our neighbors there? If Great Britain goes down, the Axis powers will control the continents of Europe, Asia, Africa, Australasia, and the high seas, and they will be in a position to bring enormous military and naval resources against this hemisphere. It is no exaggeration to say that all of us in all the Americas would be living at the point of a gun, a gun loaded with explosive bullets, economic as well as military. We should enter upon a new and terrible era in which the whole world, our hemisphere included, would be run by threats of brute force. And to survive in such a world, we would have to convert ourselves permanently into a militaristic power on the basis of war economy. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. But we well know that we cannot escape danger or the fear of danger by crawling into bed and pulling the covers over our head. The history of recent years proves that the shootings and the chains and the concentration camps are not simply the trenchant tools, but the very altars of modern dictatorships. They may talk of a new order in the world, but what they have in mind is only a revival of the oldest and the worst tyranny. In that, there is no liberty, no religion, no hope. The British people and their allies today are conducting an active war against this unholy alliance. Our own future security is greatly dependent on the outcome of that fight. Our ability to keep out of war is going to be affected by that outcome. Thinking in terms of today and tomorrow. I make the direct statement to the American people that there is far less chance of the United States getting into war if we do all we can now to support the nations defending themselves against attack by the Axis than if we acquiesce in their defeat, submit tamely to an Axis victory, and wait our turn be the object of attack in another war later on. If we are to be completely honest with ourselves, we must admit that there is risk in any course we may take. But I deeply believe that the great majority of our people agree that the course that I advocate involves the least risk now and the greatest hope for world peace in the future. The people of Europe who are defending themselves do not ask us to do their fighting. They ask us for the implements of war, the planes, the tanks, the guns, the freighters, which will enable them to fight for their liberty and for our security. Emphatically, we must get these weapons to them Get them to them in sufficient volume and quickly enough so that we and our children will be saved the agony and suffering of war which others have had to endure. Let not the defeatists tell us that it is too late. It will never be earlier. Tomorrow will be later than today. Democracy's fight against world conquest is being greatly aided and must be more greatly aided by the rearmament of the United States and by sending every ounce and every ton of munitions and supplies that we can possibly spare to help the defenders who are in the front lines. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war.
1: In this speech, he is basically saying, it is our responsibility if we are going to save democracy to provide the wherewithal for Britain to withstand the German onslaught. And he's telling Americans we must turn this nation into, it's a great line, the arsenal of democracy. And he's going to develop this further in the ensuing speech. So with that, let's go to the four
0: freedoms because I think it is Obviously, one of the most celebrated, but one of the most important speeches. And again, given nearly a full year before Pearl Harbor, when all Americans might have been ready to go to war, we're not in a war, and they wanted to avoid it at all costs. Talk about the importance of that speech and talk about what it meant for FDR and his legacy.
1: Okay. Well, the first thing is that, let me say that as much as I absolutely love that 1936 acceptance speech, and I just simply celebrate what will be the 1944 State of the Union Address. This, in many ways, is the moment where FDR, who was committed in 1932, in a speech we didn't refer to, to the idea of an economic declaration of rights for Americans. He wanted to return to the idea of the declaration and create a new declaration of economic rights for Americans. This is really fundamental to his entire presidency, here he is, January 6, 1941, that afternoon, and he is going to go before Congress and the nation, and he is going to pick up the note that began in the Arsenal of Democracy speech. This is actually the speech where he calls Americans to the war. Even if he's not saying, you will be fighting soon, he is making it very clear in Americans' minds that this is the call to war. If you like, the call to arms. And he opens up, and again, he always talks about American history, and he talks about the foolishness, basically, of believing we're going to somehow build, like the ancient Chinese, build walls that will keep out the enemy. It is imperative that we do indeed turn ourselves into the arsenal of democracy. It is imperative that we outfit ourselves to be able to fight, because he warns Americans that they are not going to tell us when they are going to attack. They are not going to tell us. We have to be ready to do it. And to be ready to do it, we must make ourselves the arsenal of democracy and create a lend-lease program, a program by which we are going to, to provide Britain with the things that it needs. He's going back on that note. Now, what I find most remarkable about this speech, and I haven't gotten yet to the four freedoms, is this. He knows full well that Americans are probably thinking to themselves, well, if we're going to go on a war footing, what happens to the New Deal? What happens to all of the things we've been seeking to secure? Keep in mind, most Americans wanted national health care, and they saw Social Security as the first step in that direction. They wanted economic security for their families. They wanted peace. So he then tells them, we must, and this, by the way, is a message to the Republicans, We must continue the New Deal. We must make sure, and in short order, we must make sure we're healthy enough to fight in a war. You can't fight impoverished. You can't fight hungry. You can't fight as a people who are suffering. You must continue the New Deal. And moreover, actually proposes extending the New Deal, even at the same time as we're going to pursue this big, massive defense effort. I talked about his faith in God, his faith in the American story, and his faith in the American people. Now, one thing to realize is he's not going to say the four essentials of democracy. Probably he does not want to echo Woodrow Wilson's speech of 1917 in which he said, we must make the world safe for democracy. Rather than use the term democracy, which has already been Roosevelt's key word all along, he is going to talk about freedom. I address you, the members of this new Congress,
2: at a moment unprecedented in the history of the Union. I use the word unprecedented because at no previous time has American security been as seriously threatened from without as it is today. Since the permanent formation of our government under the Constitution in 1789, most of the periods of crisis in our history have related to our domestic affairs, and fortunately only one of these, the four year war between the states, ever threatened our national unity. It is true that prior to 1914, the United States often has been disturbed by events in other continents. We had even engaged in two wars with European nations and in a number of undeclared wars in the West Indies, in the Mediterranean, and in the Pacific for the maintenance of American rights and for the principles of peaceful commerce, but in no case had a serious threat been raised against our national safety or our continued independence. What I seek to convey is the historic truth that the United States as a nation has at all times maintained opposition, clear definite opposition to any attempt to lock us in behind an ancient Chinese wall while the procession of civilization went past. Today, thinking of our children and of their children, we oppose for enforced isolation for ourselves, or for any other part of the Americas. There is much loose talk of our immunity from immediate and direct invasion from across the seas. Obviously, as long as the British Navy retains its power, no such danger exists. Even if there were no British Navy, It is not probable that any enemy would be stupid enough to attack us by landing troops in the United States from across thousands of miles of ocean until it had acquired strategic bases from which to operate. But we learn much from the lessons of the past years in Europe, as long as the aggressor nations maintain the offensive, they, not we, will choose the time and the place and the method of their attack. And that is why the future of all the American republics is today in serious danger. That is why this annual message to the Congress is unique in our history. That is why every member of the executive branch of the government and every member of the Congress face great responsibility, great accountability. The need of the moment is that our actions and our policy should be devoted primarily, almost exclusively, to meeting this foreign peril. For all our domestic problems are now a part of the great emergency. Just as our national policy in internal affairs has been based upon a decent respect for the rights and the dignity of all of our fellow men within our gates, so our national policy in foreign affairs has been based on a decent respect for the rights and the dignity of all nations large and small, and the justice of morality must and will win in the end. We are committed to the proposition that principles of morality and considerations for our own security will never permit us to acquiesce in a peace dictated by aggressors and sponsored by appeasers. We know that enduring peace cannot be bought at the cost of other people's freedom. We look forward to a world founded upon four essential human Freedom. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want which translated into world terms, means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms, means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. (laughs) That is no vision of a distant millennium, it is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. Since the beginning of our American history, we have been engaged in change, in a perpetual, peaceful revolution, a revolution which goes on steadily, quietly, adjusting itself to changing conditions without the concentration camp or the quicklime in the ditch. The world order which we seek is the cooperation of free countries working together in a friendly, civilized society this nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose to that high concept that can be no end save victory.
1: There are seven drafts of this speech and you can really see the development of the speech from start to finish. The finished copy is nothing like the first copy. And what they would do is he had a speechwriting team, Harry Hopkins from Iowa, who came to New York, got into social, was a social worker after he went to Grinnell College, and then became the head of the WPA and stuck with Roosevelt all the way through his administration. It was Robert Sherwood, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, who actually wrote the great Broadway play on Abraham Lincoln. And the third was Samuel Rosenman, who was essentially FDR's chief of staff, the man who back in 1932, who had organized the Brains Trust for him. And they are drafting and sending upstairs, as they say, the copy. He'd come back, Roosevelt, and so on and so forth. And then one evening, New Year's night or something like that, they're meeting together. And Roosevelt's not satisfied with this speech. There's something clearly missing. And they all recount in their own way, how all of a sudden Roosevelt leaned back in his chair and there was a silence in the room. And his like his brain was working. And he leans forward and basically says, take a note to to the secretary in the room. And he lays out what come to be called the four freedoms. Okay, the four freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And he does, in each of those cases, say, everywhere in the world. Now, I believe it was Robert Sherwood, the playwright, turned to Harry Hopkins and said, is he serious? Americans don't care about everywhere <laughs> in the world. right? And, and Hopkins said, oh, he's serious, all right. Now, afterwards, it got good reviews. A lot of historians say that the four freedoms themselves that Americans didn't take them seriously. And I I think that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit. And my proof of that is, look, when Americans were asked to name the four freedoms, they couldn't name them coherently. But if Americans were ever asked to name the four freedoms of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, they couldn't do that either. Those are the kinds of things that become a part of what Seawright Mills and others are called Second nature. They become part of what it means to be an American. You don't have to remember it unless you're gonna be tested on it in your junior year of high school. But you know damn well freedom of speech, freedom of worship, and the aspirations at the least of freedom from want and freedom from fear. Lincoln knew it, Thomas Paine knew it, they all knew it, and they projected it in their words and in their actions. But more importantly, in the wake of that speech, major organizations, the Junior League, the women's organization, they actually approached Eleanor Roosevelt to find out what could they do. A. Philip Randolph heard that speech and began to envision what was called the March on Washington movement, to bring thousands, eventually he he would tell Roosevelt he he could bring 100,000 African Americans to D.C. to demand the desegregation of the defense industries. The organization that would later become the Americans for Democratic Action in their early days, heard that speech and decided to launch a series of schools. Labor unions themselves began to discuss this in terms of what could they do for the defense industries. Eventually, it's that people grabbed hold of the idea. Now, I will tell you this. Most Americans were not envisioning creating those four freedoms around the world. They knew it. Surveys later showed that they had in mind realizing those four freedoms in the United States. The more important thing here is that when they heard Roosevelt saying these words, they heard a promise that beyond the war, we will come to realize not just the first two, but freedom from want and freedom from fear. Now, if you're Jewish, you're living in New York or Boston or or any of the major cities at that time, or smaller towns around the nation, You hear that as a promise that the thugs of the right-wing groups mobilized by the likes of Father Coughlin will not be allowed to attack the elderly and children on the streets of New York and Boston. If you heard that, if you were African-American in the Deep South or up north in the ghettos, you heard that as a promise that white supremacists would not have their way. Over and over again, people heard that. Religious leaders, priests, ministers, priests aside from Father Coghlan's type, priests, ministers, and rabbis began to build it into their sermons. Playwrights and others began to build it into their works. It became part of the air and the atmosphere you breathe. They became the understanding of what the struggle would be about. So it's an incredible speech. And moreover, in Britain, people heard it. Churchill loved it. If you actually Google Four Freedoms, if you can narrow your search to Britain or Canada, you'll see how significant it was overseas. Partisans fighting in Europe heard the speech by way of the various clandestine radios. I mean, it mattered to people. And Roosevelt, took it; he believed in it. Later, it would become fundamental to the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It was fundamental to the creation of the United Nations. In fact, Roosevelt himself, when, he, when eventually we would go into the war as part of the Allied Nations, he didn't always talk about Allied Nations. He talked about... Capital U, Capital N, United Nations, with the understanding that the Four Freedoms would be at the heart of that endeavor. So it's really, I mean, it's a critical speech. And I will tell you that my original plan was to write a book about the second Bill of Rights speech, and I don't need to explain why I didn't go there. But the Four Freedoms, I realized, was the speech. It's the high point of the Roosevelt administration and that move from the New Deal to what Elizabeth Borgwart, in her book, A New Deal for the World, Recognize as this pivot of America's role in the world, if we pursue the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln would have put it.
0: Well, I'm glad you went through that because it is an incredibly important speech. And like I said, we're going to put up, we're going to list all of your books in our show notes. But it is just like you said, the pinnacle of Roosevelt's ideals and. Again, that that backbone for the United Nations, the backbone for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which Eleanor, of course, shepherded through a decade later. I want to end on two speeches, one that he gave, the other that he didn't. The first one is, The right to vote must be open to our citizens irrespective of race, color, or creed. It was a radio address in October of 1944.
2: My fellow Americans... I'm speaking to you tonight from the White House. I'm speaking particularly on behalf of those Americans who, regardless of party, I hope you remember that, very much hope that there will be recorded a large registration and a large vote this fall. The continuing health and vigor of our democratic system depends upon the public spirit and devotion of its citizens which find expression in the ballot box. Every man and every woman in this nation, regardless of party, who have the right to register and to vote and the opportunity to register and to vote have also the sacred obligation to register and to vote. For the free and secret ballot is the real keystone of our American constitutional system. This is primarily because when the American people want a change of government, even when they merely want new faces, they can raise the old electioneering battle cry of throw the rascals out. It is true that there are many undemocratic defects in voting laws in the various states, almost 48 different kinds of defects. And some of these produce injustices which prevent a full and free expression of a public opinion. The right to vote must be open to our citizens irrespective of race and color or creed, without tax or artificial restriction of any kind. And the sooner we get to that basis of political equality, the better it'll be for the country as a
0: whole. Talk about the importance of that speech in terms of a president giving it in 1944 and what it meant, particularly in the context of what we've just gone through.
1: Yeah, now you'll have to forgive me because I do want to refer to the second Bill of Rights speech to lay the groundwork for the question yeah, you've just please, asked. Please, okay. so. In January 1944, Franklin Roosevelt returns to the theme specifically of the four freedoms, but he now wants to give it, an, if you like, a more American vision. He's turning back to what can Americans do in the post-war period. He knows what he's about to say in that January 44 speech is going to be very, very difficult to enact because of the fact that the Southern Democrats may not buy into it, and the Republicans and the Democrats together have now formed a conservative coalition in Congress. But he goes before the nation, having already pursued, commissioned a series of private polls. The White House has commissioned a series of private polls. He has asked Americans in 1943 a series of questions about what they want to accomplish after the war is over. And what is revealed in those surveys is startling. Basically, I will tell you, Americans wanted social democracy. And the best example I can give you, and this is The proof of the pudding is 84% of Americans in 1943 said they wanted guaranteed health care, national health care. And I could go on and on about education and other areas. Now, Roosevelt, in other words, felt empowered to lay out a vision of a social democratic America, clearly social democratic. And he says to the nation in 1944 that the war is not yet over the struggles will continue. But we can see victory. We can see it. And he says, now is the time where we must basically act upon the possibilities of the post-war era. And he says, we have come to understand that necessitous men are not free men, meaning needy people are not free people. And he says, we've also come to appreciate the imperative of certain, of, if you like, The word enacting might not be the case, but enacting certain fundamental rights. This is that return that he began to do or pursue in 1932 in the Commonwealth Club speech where he lays out the idea of an economic declaration of rights. He's returning to the declaration and now in, you might say, the, the first Bill of Rights. So Roosevelt says, we are now going to consider the creation, we already need, recognize the need for a second Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights. And he lays them out. He then says, because I brought this up before, afterward, he says, he warns Americans. He believes we've already accepted a second Bill of Rights, and now the task is to, if you like, enact it or build it into the nation's very foundations. And he lays them out.
2: This nation, in the past two years, has become an active partner in the world's greatest war against human slavery. We have joined with like-minded people in order to defend ourselves in a world that has been gravely threatened with gangster rule. But I do not think that any of us Americans can be content with mere survival. Sacrifices that we and our allies are making impose upon all of us a sacred obligation to see to it that out of this war we and our children will gain something better than mere survival. We are united in determination that this war shall not be followed by another interim, which leads to new disaster, that we shall not repeat the tragic errors of ostrich isolationism. The one supreme objective for the future, which we discussed for each nation individually, and for all the United Nations, can be summed up in one word, security. And that means not only physical security, which provides safety from attacks by aggressors, it means also economic security, social security, moral security in a family of nations. In this war, we have been compelled to learn How interdependent upon each other are all groups and sections of the whole population of America. It is our duty now to begin to lay the plans and determine the strategy more for more than the winning of the war. It is time to begin the plans and determine the strategy for winning a lasting peace and the establishment of an American standard of living higher than ever known before. This republic at its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights, among them the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. They were our rights to life and liberty. We have come to a clearer realization of the fact, however, that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. People who are hungry, people who are out of a job, are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industry, or shops, or farms, or mines of the nation. The right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The right of farmers to raise and sell their products at a return which will give them and their families a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care. And the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age and sickness and accident and unemployment. And finally, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for all our citizens. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. One of the great American industrialists of our day, a man who has rendered human service to his country in this crisis, recently emphasized the grave dangers of rightist reaction in this nation. All clear-thinking businessmen share that concern. Indeed, if such reaction should develop, if history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s, then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism
1: here at home. Let that be a warning to anybody who wants the normalcy of the 1990s or the 2000s. No, nope. there is no normalcy to go back to. You gotta go forward in enhancing democracy. Nobody refers to that. There's the second time, actually, of many times, but this is the second blunt time where he really is blunt about it. He's warning of fascism. Doesn't mean the Klan alone, KKK. He doesn't mean a sort of closet Nazis of the day who have gone underground in light of the war effort. What he's thinking of, and this is something Henry Wallace himself was speaking quite often about, his vice president, is that the degree to which the corporate bosses might resort to fascist tendencies and fascist ideas. Now you raise the question of that other speech, the right to vote must be open to our citizens. This is another speech that people tend to ignore when they say, well, Roosevelt, he wasn't concerned about the question of the right to vote of African-Americans. Undeniably, Roosevelt did not pursue certain kinds of racial justice causes. The military World War II was a segregated military. In 1942, he allowed California businessmen and conservatives to lead him to issue an executive order that interned Japanese Americans from the West Coast to camps in the Far West and the Midwest. He tried, but he did not go far enough in lifting the in trying to lift the immigration quotas. But though I will tell you, Congress did not want to lift the immigration quotas to let refugees in. Even Robert Wagner, the senator from New York, it was a German American. He was an immigrant kid. He couldn't get his fellow senators to lift the quotas enough. Nevertheless, here we are in '44. And he knows the civil rights movement is active. He knows the civil rights movement is growing. The NAACP has grown. A. Philip Randolph, though they did not march on Washington because Roosevelt had signed the order desegregating the defense industries, he held on to that movement and was constantly challenging Roosevelt to do more. And in this speech, Roosevelt is essentially saying the time has come to bring an end to denying the right to vote. He's reaching out in part to try to make sure African-Americans turn out to vote for him. He's also trying to reach into those corners of the South where poor whites actually could vote despite literacy and requirements and and poll taxes. But it's also the case, he's he's essentially telling Americans, there's no going back. We must go forward in building the democratic America. And by the way, I mean, Truman himself, for all of his failings, will do what he can to put that very much on the agenda when he he himself creates a commission, a civil rights commission.
0: Thank you for going through that. And speaking of going forward, you've been very generous with your time. I want to end this episode with the speech he didn't give, the speech that was to be delivered the day after he passed. Talk about why you included it, talk about what it says, and talk about what Roosevelt's, a little window into his mind of what the future looked like
1: as we were on the precipice
0: defeating Germany and where we were.
1: Well, the first thing about it is that this, I mean, he knew his health was poor. Did he actually know he was going to be passing away when he did? We don't know. But he knew how poor his health was. His doctors basically had kept quiet the question of his health. His heart was weak. There are those who think he might even have had some kind of cancer. I mean, it was it was not the same Roosevelt in this fourth, the beginnings of his fourth term, that he had been. Although he had, he had really created a, a remarkable set of speeches during nineteen forty four, but in forty five he was a very weakened man. And what he's basically saying to Americans is that we now have to go forward, realizing our place in the world and our relationships to each other he doesn't often invoke god as strongly and directly as he does in this speech so this goes back to that faith in god and his it's not the, he doesn't believe that god has guaranteed anything but he does believe that god has challenged humanity and americans given the war he dies on april 12th and this is a speech he was due to deliver on, on april 13th he's sort of projecting americans as world leaders. He talks about Jefferson in this speech. He spent most of the time during the war talking about Lincoln, the war president. Jefferson was the president he spoke of before he won the presidency and early on in his presidency. Because he's thinking of Jefferson, who wrote the declaration, Jefferson who presented America to the world. He makes more of Jefferson than Jefferson himself may deserve. But he is talking about America's place in the world and Americans as part of humanity and that we are not alone. There are things that we must do and things we must address. He's really, in many ways, going back to that 1926 speech to the teenagers at the Milton Academy when he was a younger man, a somewhat weakened man because he had already suffered polio. But what he's doing here is he's talking to Americans about possibilities and responsibilities. Yeah, and he closes, as, as you know, I mean, there is no recording of this because he passed away. Well, there is no recording of it by FDR.
0: But we did find a reading of it by Franklin Roosevelt Jr. at the FDR library. So let's listen to a little of the last speech that FDR ever wrote. The work, my friends, is peace.
3: More than an end of this war an end to the beginning of all wars, yes, an end forever to this impractical, unrealistic settlement of the differences between governments by the mass killing of peoples. Today, as we move against the terrible scourge of war, as we go forward toward the greatest contribution that any generation of human beings can make in this world, the contribution of lasting peace, I ask you to keep up your faith. I measure the sound, solid achievement that can be made at this time by the straight edge of your own confidence and your own resolve. And to you and to all Americans who dedicate themselves with us to the making of an abiding peace, I say, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. Let us move
1: forward with strong and active faith. Now, can I just quickly, on that note, go back to the four freedoms, because this is important for people to understand. Freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world, whether it was gonna happen everywhere in the world or not, it was definitely something that he was committed to realizing in America, and that other speech about voting rights is part of that. Eleanor Roosevelt plays an important part in much of this, and I really haven't had a chance to talk about that. The second one, freedom of worship, to his mind, the suffering that he himself could not address fully, given the requirements of the war, the Holocaust, and the persecution of Christians as well in parts of the world. I mean, all of this is clearly on his mind. Freedom from want, the way he presented it in the speech is freedom of want, so as creating economic relations among nations so that no nation would suffer destitution, but that nations would be in a position to enhance the lives of its citizens. And then on the question of freedom from fear, it was war that he was talking about, and he basically was seeking the creation of the United Nations, and in many ways, an end to the capacity of nations to create armaments to destroy each other. That's what it was about. I think that is a great place to end. The book is called
0: FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Writings and Speeches of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Professor Kay, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the book, and we
1: hope our listeners will too. Thank you, Adam. I have to write another book soon in order to talk to you again. Absolutely.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please Rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.